Well, good morning to you. We're still waking up a little bit, maybe. Uh, my name is Matt Lulloyan. I'm the pastor of Liberty Church. Uh, it's my privilege to also welcome you this morning, and if we haven't met, it would be an honor to, uh, to fix that, even today. Um, I try to, as best I can, make my way to the doors before the mass exodus after the service is over, um, but uh, I sometimes get hung up there. So if we've never met and you've been here a long time, um, come find me and track me down. I would love that. It would be a privilege to get to shake your hand and, and meet you. Um, a couple weeks ago, we finished up uh, a series in the Gospel of John, and a couple weeks from now, we're starting a series in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Between those two, uh, we're going to spend a couple weeks in the Psalms. And so today, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 61. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, that's page 478, if you're using one of those. Otherwise, kind of aim right for the middle of your Bible, and you'll be at least fairly close to, to Psalm 61. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the Psalms. Some of you maybe not as much. Um, Psalms are a book of songs for the people of God. That's what they are. Uh, and one of their primary purposes in Scripture, why we have them in Scripture, is to really help shape our worship, to shape how we engage in worship of, of God. But another really important byproduct of this book of the Bible and why it's there in the Bible is that Psalms validates the human experience. Psalms validates the human experience. All the different kinds of emotions that we go through in life, all the different kinds of experiences that we wrestle with in life. Psalms gives us companionship, gives us precedent for those things. And part of the human experience is lament. So in turn, there's a lot of psalms that are filled with lament, with grief, with sadness, with mourning, with exhaustion, with weariness, with tears. And these psalms that include lament, that are about lament, they give us companionship in those emotions, but they also make this experience normative. They make lament normative. They anticipate, and actually even more than that, they expect that the people of God will grow weary, that they will grieve, that they will mourn. And that's why it's really important for us to not like, pretend this isn't there in, in Scripture and to do things like we did last week and look at texts like Psalm chapter 1 to define what it means to be blessed and what it doesn't mean to be blessed. Because if we've got any kind of notion in our minds that the people of God, blessed people that we are, should be exempt from pain, should be exempt from suffering, should be exempt from exhaustion in life, then we're going to find ourselves in a place where we don't have a category for a lot of the things that happen to us in our lives. As is almost always the case, there's people who can say this way better than I can. So in this instance, John Piper, a pastor and author in a book called The Roots of Endurance, puts it this way. So there's a mindset in the prosperous West that we deserve pain-free, trouble-free existence. That when life deals us the opposite, we have a right not only to blame somebody or some system and to feel sorry for ourselves, but also to devote most of our time to coping. And he goes on to say, frustration is normal. Disappointment is normal. Sickness is normal. Conflict, persecution, danger, and stress, they are all normal. The mindset that moves away from these will move away from reality and, and away from Christ. So in other words, what, what he's saying there is that if we don't have a category for things like frustration and disappointment and conflict and stress, 
we actually end up compounding the difficulty. So what we're experiencing when we're in moments like that, it's already hard, it's already difficult to navigate, but without a category for that, we begin to distance ourselves from reality. And we make up these strange, different, false realities in the process. And worse, when we distance ourselves from reality, we also distance ourselves from the real Jesus, the God who's there, the God with whom we are interacting with in that moment. So a lot of you, I'm sure, were here last week. You heard me share last week that as a church, um, we're in a moment of substantial change. Um, Two of our staff members, Ryan and Dave, are in the midst of transitions. Um, Dave transitioning to pursue pastoral leadership elsewhere. Ryan's going to stay on staff with us, but just part-time, and he starts back this week, actually, at um, the Vista School. And it's the kind of moment where, in in addition to lots of other feelings and emotions and, and thoughts that we have, the kinds of things that we might experience would be things like sadness and frustration and disappointment and discouragement and whatever other things you would attach to that list. Uh, here's, as I've sat in this and, and wrestled with this, here's a little bit of the awkward position that I find myself in as your pastor. Uh, I feel exactly those same things. I feel those same things. I feel sadness, and I feel frustration, and I feel disappointment, and I feel discouragement. At the same time, I bear responsibility. So I've been an active participant. I haven't been some passive bystander in why we find ourselves the place that we find ourselves as a church in this moment. My fingerprint's on this. So my own, my own mistakes, my own sin, is a part of the reason that we find ourselves in this moment of substantial change in the life of our church. So this, for me, has been an opportunity not only to think about this stuff, but also to pursue repentance, you know, as God brings those, to, those things to light. But here's the place that I find myself in in this. Um, though I feel probably the similar things are the same things that you do, though I bear responsibility, in the mysterious ways of God, it also is my responsibility to lead us as a church through this. It also falls to me to lead us through this. And, and I want to share this, and I hope it encourages you, because solely in the kindness of God, he has, just in the last several weeks, given me a perspective in this that I could never have landed at on my own. And that is that it's not just my responsibility, but it is my privilege to walk with you through this. I don't expect you to understand that. I don't, I don't need you to understand that. I don't know if I understand that. Um, but it's work that God has been doing in me. And it's work that I hope God continues to do in me and do in you and do in all of us as we learn how to do things like lament and mourn and grieve and, and handle the difficulties that life brings. As God does that kind of work, we need the balm of the Word of God. We need the balm of the Word of God, particularly things like Psalm 61. If we're not going to compound the difficulty by distancing ourselves from reality and distancing ourselves from Jesus, God forbid, then we need to know that sadness and discouragement and weariness are normal. And King David in Psalm 61 uses the word faint-hearted. We need to know that it's normal to become faint-hearted. That, that in that place of faint-heartedness, God is not absent. God is very much right there in it. We need faith in the midst of these moments of faint-heartedness. And through his own experience, that's what King David offers to us in Psalm 61. So my prayer has been that the living and active word of God would, would just 
push this truth deep into our souls this morning and apply this to our lives as we engage with, with Psalm 61. So if you have Bibles, follow along with me. I'm going to read the whole, the whole thing. It's only uh, eight verses long. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we look to you and we cry to you, particularly in moments when we're sad and when we're faint-hearted, when we're weary. And we ask you to do only what you can do, which is to give us hope and give us perspective and remind us of the life that is ours in Jesus. And I pray that through your word this morning, that's exactly what you would be doing in our hearts. For every man, woman, and child in here this morning, would you prepare hearts? You have prepared hearts as people have come today. Wherever we find ourselves, may you meet us right there. May you do the deep work that only your spirit can do. And we pray that in your name. Amen. So let me just give a little bit of a, of a backdrop to this psalm before we kind of work our way through it. Uh, most scholars believe David wrote this psalm, as well as several other psalms, while he was in temporary exile uh, away from Jerusalem, and while his son Absalom was um, trying to kill him, fleeing from his son Absalom. If you want to reference this story later, it comes in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18. But just really quick, here's the highlights. Um, Absalom is one of da- King David's sons. Uh, we find out from Scripture that he is incredibly attractive. He's an attractive human being. Uh, he's popular. He ends up murdering his brother because his brother slept with their sister, okay? Which is exactly, it's, it's as dysfunctional as it sounds. He ends up murdering his brother because his brother slept with their sister. So King David's family line, in certain instances, makes Jerry Springer look like quality family programming. It's, there's messed up stuff going on in the line of, of King David. After the murder, Absalom flees, and he's gone away from Jerusalem for a couple years before David extends mercy to him and invites him to come back to Jerusalem. When Absalom gets back, he starts building a posse. He starts building a posse, and eventually it gets big enough that it has an army, and these, this army and these people, they rally at another city where Absalom declares himself king, and makes plans to attack Jerusalem and kill David, take over. But before the attack can actually happen, David finds out, uh, and he sets out, along with those who are loyal to him, he flees from Jerusalem. He flees eastward across the, the Jordan River. And it's there, away from home, away from Jerusalem, in this temporary exile that David pens this psalm, Psalm 61. So can we all agree that it's understandable why David is faint-hearted? Like, his circumstances are unbelievably difficult in this moment. And yet, this is what's amazing about this, what he writes here, without pretending it's like a fun spot to be in, without pretending that he's glad that he's there, he speaks words of such deep faith from that place. 
So I think it's really fair to call Psalm 61 the psalm of faint-hearted faith. Psalm of faint-hearted faith. And so much of what's here is helpful and applicable in our lives. So let's just step our way through this. The question that we're going to try to answer is, how do we become people of faint-hearted faith? When we find ourselves faint-hearted, for whatever reason we find ourselves there, where does faith come from? And first, what we see is that it comes from access to God. Faint-hearted faith comes from access to God. Verse 1, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. One of the, th- uh, the reasons that, that finding faith in the midst of pain and difficulty is so challenging is because we, we often assume that we should be further along than we actually are. We assume we should, we should be further along than we actually are, and we try to bypass the process in which this kind of faith is actually formed in us. So there are these great examples in the Bible. Hebrews 11, for example, is even referred to as the hall of faith. And if you're familiar with that and you read that, you come across these examples of these men and women with such incredible faith in God in the middle of impossible circumstances. And we read those and we long to be like those people, which is so good, right? May we become those kinds of people. But we assume that we can leapfrog the process. We assume that we can, we can forget what it looked like for God to actually form that kind of faith in those men and women. David's actually one of the men that's mentioned in passing in Hebrews 11. And you see from his own words here in Psalm 61, faith doesn't always look like, and it definitely doesn't start in this place, of like staring down the barrel, you know, staring down the sword and the flames of the fire and just saying, bring it. It doesn't start there. Where does it start? It starts by recognizing that you have access to God. Recognizing that your access to God and then crying out to God, you know, taking advantage of that access... That's an act of faith in and of itself. But it also becomes a kindling for an even deeper kind of faith. Because when you do that, when you see that you have access to God, when you cry out to Him, you're going to the source. You're going to the place where more faith is found even when answers aren't found, even when better circumstances aren't found. But more faith is found. We don't like baby steps, right? We don't like baby steps, but we need baby steps because in so many ways we are as helpless as babies. So the baby step here of opening your mouth and opening your heart to God in the midst of faint-heartedness is the entry point into this kind of faith. And years after this happens, years after David writes this psalm, Jesus talks about how if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And I think when he says that, he's touching on this same reality, that if there's enough faith if you, can, if you can find enough faith in you to realize that you need something other than you, and you can lift up your, your eyes and your heart and your hands to God and just cry, God, hear me in that moment. Well, what you're doing in that moment is aligning yourself with the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So just that faith that, that, that sees the access to God and cries out to him in the access to God aligns yourself with him and is the, the gateway to even more faith. Second, faint-hearted faith comes through honest expression to God. There's access to God, then there's honest expression to God. First part of verse 2. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint, David says. And I, I can't even presume to imagine what David's feeling in this moment. You know, he's extended this mercy to Absalom for murdering his other son. 
You know, David's other son was murdered in this process. Uh, he's welcomed Absalom back to Jerusalem only so that Absalom engineers a coup, you know, tries to depose him and then kill him, take his spot. So David has several low points in his life that, that we know of from Scripture. This has got to be one of the worst of them. So what he does here, he doesn't pretend otherwise. He doesn't pretend otherwise. He honestly pours out his heart before God. He says, my heart is faint. My heart is faint. God, I can't do this. I'm tired. And I'm hurt. I can't do it. And even though he's really not all that far geographically from Jerusalem, it feels to David like he's at the end of the earth. So he just tells God exactly what it feels like. He's only like 20 miles away. But he says, God, it feels like I'm at the end of the earth, about to fall off the edge of the earth. It's okay. This is what we need to learn from this. It's okay to tell God you're weary. It's okay to tell God that you're not able. It's actually good to tell God those things. Because we need not pretend that we're strong in these moments. Faith is never about our strength. It's all about our weakness. It's all about our inability. If we had everything that we needed from within ourselves, from our own strength and resolve, we wouldn't need faith. We wouldn't need God. But you know better than that. And I, and I, would, I think if you're honest with yourself, regardless of where you find yourself this morning, if you profess faith in Jesus or not, I think you know that to be true. I think you know that to be true. You know better than to think that your own ability, your own determination is all that you need in this life. We need so much more than that. And it's this kind of honest expression through this kind of honest expression to God that we see our need and that God meets us in that place and grows our faith. Access to God, honest expression to God. Next, faint-hearted faith comes through pleading the nature and the character of God. The rest of verse 2 through verse 4. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Now, who is God? That's a huge question. No way we're ever going to ever be able to, in a Sunday morning, tackle even a, enough of that. But because God is so much, because, because who he is encompasses so much, there are specific aspects of his nature and character that meet us right where we are in any given moment. And here we see that to the faint-hearted, God shows himself to be safety. God shows himself to be security. And David offers these four images here of God as the place of safety and security. So God is the higher rock. You know, he's infinitely more steady. He's infinitely more stable than you and I are. God is the strong tower. God is impenetrable to, the, to any kind of attack from the enemy. God is the tent. It's a reference to the tabernacle, the, the sanctuary, the place of safe haven for the people of God. And God is the coverer. He's the one who offers refuge under the shelter of his wings. This is an image that comes up multiple times in the Psalms. It's a picture of God's tender and loving and compassionate care. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. We can't hide from the world, but we can still be hidden in God. That's what it is to hide in the shelter of, of the wings of God. I, just, I want to single out a little more the, the image of God as the tent uh, in this because it's uh, particularly meaningful given the context of what's happening here, where David is when he writes this. As David is getting ready to flee from Jerusalem before Absalom comes to kill him, the priests in Jerusalem, they bring the Ark of the Covenant out of the tent, out of the tabernacle, 
and they prepare to send it away with David. You know, get this thing out of here, go. You know, hide the ark with you. And just as they're about to do that, David says, hang on, something's not right about this. Something's not right about this. Who am I to protect and defend God? It's the other way around. He doesn't need my safety. He doesn't need my shelter. He doesn't need my security. I need his. So he tells the priest, you know what? Actually, keep the ark here. Put it back in the tent. And in that, David is saying, I don't know what the heck is happening and why Absalom's doing this, but somehow God is in this. Somehow God is in this. And if this is what God has for me, then God can just as easily return me to this place. And he says that in, I think it's chapter 15 of 2 Samuel. He says, God will bring me back and he will let me look upon the ark and he will let me look upon the tent again. That is faint-hearted faith. And in turn, days after that, as he's in exile away from Jerusalem writing this psalm, David picks up that tent image among these other three images and he pleads that nature and character of God. God, lead me to you, the rock. God, let me dwell in you, the tent. God, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And that's exactly what is, the, what, what, what is there for us to emulate when we're in moments of faint-heartedness. Whatever, whenever we're in the midst of whatever makes our hearts faint. And again, it's this posture of a humble inability. You know, you don't, you don't plead from a place of power. You plead from a place of deep need. By definition, pleading is not from a place of strength and power. But the beauty is that you're not pleading here with God to be anything other than what he already is. Your faith doesn't make him these things. He is the rock. He is the strong tower. He is the tent. He is the one with the shelter of his wings that he hides you in. So we got to see the security and the safety in the nature and character of God and plead for God to show himself as safe and secure to us in exactly those moments when we need that. Continuing on from there, faint-hearted faith comes from both God's past faithfulness and his future promises. Verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. So in the midst of of faint-heartedness, whatever causes that, Faith can come from both looking backward and looking forward. And David puts his finger on that with the word heritage in verse 5. So this heritage that David speaks of, it's a backward-looking reminder of God's faithfulness. God has already done that work. He has already given David this heritage. He's already brought him into his family. He's already appointed him to be king over his people. Not to mention, on top of that, how many times God has already protected and preserved David's life. You know, from wild animals, from Saul, from countless battles that he's been in, from his own sin. But this heritage is also a forward-looking expectation for God to pour out even more of his goodness and graciousness. For God to be faithful to his ongoing promises. So this is David claiming those promises that God is not going to abandon his people. That that even in the worst of circumstances, God is going to give his people a hope and a future. So faith is found both in what God has already done and in what God is going to do. And I just invite you this morning to think about that. There is a particular kindness and a particular caring display of the grace of God in the way that he can instill faith in people through both of these things. Because I don't know your life and all the details of it. 
You don't know my life and all the details of it. But there's certain moments where looking in the rearview mirror, looking back, it's so messed up. It's so broken. It's so fractured that when you look back, you can't, you can't even put any of that together in, in any way that has some kind of redemptive value. You look back and you're like, I don't know what the heck that was. I got nothing to make of that. I can't see anything of the faithfulness of God in that. There's also moments in your life where you have so much fear and anxiety looking to the future that you, like, you can't muster anything up. You're like, I don't, how, could, how could this possibly get better? What could possibly change to be better or different for me in the future? But in the grace of God, faith can be found in either direction. You don't just have to find it in one or the other. You can find it in both. You can look backward and see all the ways that God has cared for you up to this point. You can look forward with confident hope that God will continue to be faithful to his promises. He will bring to fruition all that it means that people are part of his heritage. So faith is found in both of these things, but in the kindness of God, faith can be found in either. Next. Faint-hearted faith comes by placing yourself within the wider scope of God's work. Placing yourself within the wider scope of God's work. Verses 6 and 7. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. As human beings, um, our identity has different layers, does it not? There's who we are simply as a man or a woman before God. There's also who we are in the context of the place that God has put us and the work that God has given us to do. And when you're faint-hearted, it affects all of that. It affects all of that. Which is why we see these different layers come out in David's words in Psalm 61. Okay, so David is David. You know, he's a man before God. He's a man after God's own heart. So verses 1 through 5 here are this deeply personal prayer that would apply regardless of any position or responsibilities that David had. But David is also the king of Israel. So in verses 6 and 7, David continues to pray for himself. It's still a personal prayer, but he places himself within the wider scope of God's work. In his weariness, in his grief, in his discouragement, he cries out for God to care for him, but not only care for him for his own sake, but to care for him for the sake of all the other people that David's life impacts. A couple different ways that this fuels our faith today for us, you and me. First, just like David, our lives have these different layers. Like you are you, you know, I am me, you are you, a man or a woman before God. And your life matters regardless of what position or responsibilities you hold or don't hold in a given moment. But you've also been put on this earth in a particular place and with particular gifts and with a particular platform to use those gifts. And as we widen our lens to see that, it gives us faith that God is working in us not merely for our own sake. He's working in us also for all that he intends to do through us in the lives of others for the good of the world that he's put us in. There's another way, though, that this fuels our faith. As king, David here is the representative head of the people of God. And when God established David's throne over Israel, the destiny of the people became inextricably linked with the destiny of the king. 
As the king went, so went the people. That's how it worked in ancient Israel. And so as the Israelite people sang this song, you know, recited this psalm, years after David had died and his bad kings and good kings came and went, this became not just a personal lament, but truly a reminder of the scope of God's work. And as the history of God's redemption carried that all the way forward to Jesus, we see in Jesus the fulfillment of all that a king over the people of God is meant to be. And we gain confidence in that, that truly our destiny is tied up in the destiny of our king. Except that ours is no mere human, flawed king. Our king is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is risen from the grave, the one who is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God for all time, who will come again. That king. That's the wider scope of God's work. And our faith is strengthened as our eyes are opened to see our place within that wider scope of God's work. So think about this and be encouraged by this. As a son or daughter of the eternal king whose throne will endure forever, so you too will endure forever. Your destiny is tied to his, and because he's Jesus, that is a safe and secure place to be. Lastly, what does faint-hearted faith look like? It looks like joyfully walking day by day in what God has before you. Verse 8. So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. So from this place of deep despair and faint-heartedness, you know, how in the world in an eight-verse psalm do you conclude talking about praise? Do you conclude talking about joy in your life? It's through perspective. That's how David gets there. It's through perspective. And his perspective-saturated conclusion here at the end is this. Because today is not ultimate, I can face today. Because today is not ultimate, I can face today. So today is not the only day. Today is not the ultimate day. My circumstances today are not my ultimate circumstances. They're real circumstances. They're significant circumstances. And to pretend otherwise is insanity. But today is not ultimate. It does not define the totality of my reality. And our joy comes from gaining piece by piece a growing perspective of the fullness of what God has done, of what God is doing, of what God will do. Not just this dim and foggy microcosm of what we can experience of that right now. What we can see of that right now. So what does faint-hearted faith look like? It looks like stepping into today with the praise of God in your heart and the praise of God on your tongue. And the more days we do that, the more perspective that we get. You know, more days means more perspective. That's why for like a little kid, a year feels like eternity. And for a grandparent, a year feels like the blink of an eye. The more days we do this, the more perspective we get. And each day that we add, each day that we pursue rejoicing, as we step into what God has before us today, it keeps fueling our faith more and more. And David doesn't start this psalm there. And neither do you and I. You know, when, you, when you're faint-hearted, you're faint-hearted. So be faint-hearted. And don't pretend that you're not. But the gift of Psalm 61 and the gift of really David's own experience that he shares by writing this down is that we have both rock-solid truth here 
and practical help toward cultivating a faint-hearted faith. And we need both. We need both. We need truth. And we need truth that's going to permeate and penetrate the weariness in our souls and combat the lies that are sure to come in that moment. We also need practical help for how to do that. And Psalm 61 is this faith-kindling, beautiful combination of both of those things. So I'll leave you with this. Whatever it is that causes your faint-heartedness, whether you're there today or it's going to be tomorrow or another day for you, whatever it is that causes that, whenever you find yourself in that place, may we see in Psalm 61 the fuel for faint-hearted faith. Because you have access to God, bring your honest expression to Him. Because God is the place of ultimate safety and security, plead that you might experience His ultimate safety and security in that moment. Because God has given you the heritage of His people, trust His past faithfulness and confidently hope in His future promises. And because you are very much within the wider scope of God's redemptive work, with joy in your heart, faithfully take the step that's before you to take today. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, all we can see today is what you allow us to see today. And we need your perspective and we need the truth of your goodness and the truth of all that you have done in the history of your redemption to to set our minds and fix our minds on truth and to be saturated by it. And we also, Jesus, need practical help for how we gain faith, how we walk in faith in moments when it's hard. So we pray, Jesus, we're we're grateful to you for for the example of David, and we pray we learn from it. But rather than just mimic an example, we pray this would be deep work you do in our own heart. And I pray this would be deep experience that we have, that, Jesus, we can cry out to you in honest expression and see you for who you are and that you would meet us there. And that all that you've called us to do that we would see, Jesus, that you are trustworthy, you are safe and secure, and we'd step into today, and even with a lot of joy in our hearts, that we'd step into today to follow you into that. We look to you in all this. We pray this in your name. Amen.